Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week feels like an inflection point for future fossils because this week I have the luxury and the pleasure of talking with Eric Wargo, author of Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious, which anyone who has been within two degrees of me in the last six months knows I have not been able to stop talking about. Eric is quick to point out that he is by far not the first person to address these ideas, to pose this argument, but I've found time loops to be the most articulate and digestible presentation of the case for a model of time in which the future can influence the present and the past. I mean, I have to remind everyone, including myself, that regardless of our naive indoctrination, we've really been over the idea of a single past and future for over a 100 years. Einstein's space-time manifold makes all clocks local. However, it does suggest that all of those clocks are still running in the same direction that locally, which is probably the only way I think we can talk about these things, entropy still flows as a one-way street. Of course, working as I do as staff at the Santa Fe Institute, I am privy to a lot of conversations about how even these disclaimers are insufficient to the true complexity of time, which just the other week at Interplanetary Festival, a renowned physicist David Wolpert reminded me has no meaning from the cosmic perspective of mathematics applied to the universe as a whole. So really what we're talking about here is a conflict between the sort of mundane, everyday notion and experience of time and the sort of super-historical view of physics. And in light of this, it's kind of surprising that the scientific community in general, has such a difficult time warming up to the idea that information may reflux from the future into this moment and that the actually relatively commonplace experience of premonition or foreknowledge, uh, prophetic dreams, synchronicities, and so on, it's as if our scientific paradigm has an immunological response to considering the possibility that the universe is written in human-readable language. Almost, perhaps, an aesthetic bias for the purported ineffability of quantum mechanics, when in fact, very well-argued, empirically supported, alternative interpretations of quantum mechanics exist. But perhaps more important to these abstract theoretical concerns are the implications for our individual human lives. What changes if we open to the possibility that we can, in fact, receive information about our own future states? And why, given that the premise of this show is that the future already exists and is attending to us in this moment, has it taken me so long to seriously entertain how this would work in my life? 
not in some thought experiment conversation with unborn historian descendants, but in an elegant causal Mobius strip with past and future iterations of my own brain. I want you to feel into the tesseract of your life to unfold and stretch into the four-dimensional worm you have and will trace through this world. Maybe even notice your future self appreciating having listened to this conversation and reflecting back upon the difference in knowledge states that future you has with present you and see where that takes you. But first, I want to thank Alec J. Hernandez, this week's new Patreon supporter. That makes, I think, 145 of you out there in the Future Fossils book club. 145 of you getting the extra 10-minute zinger I clipped off the end of this week's episode. Getting early access to my new studio tracks and the Future Fossils coloring book. If you would like to drink from the Hydra fire hose that is my Patreon feed, then uh, hop on over to slash Michael Garfield and uh, check that out. There's a ton of free stuff up there for folks as well. Thank you all so much for supporting this show, helping me keep it independent, helping me keep it a priority in my busy life. I love the conversations facilitated in this community, and I'm grateful to every single one of you who has been listening, who has been sharing the show with other folks. It's like the tiny molecular activity going on in the machinery of the cell, keeping you intact, keeping you dynamic and alive. So thanks for participating in the autopoietic and homeostatic mechanisms of future fossils. Anyway, this is a superb conversation. I'm honored to share it with you. Enjoy. Let us begin then, Eric. It's, yes. It is a long-anticipated, perhaps even prophesied, pleasure to have you on the show. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it all my life. <laughs> so, uh, actually, you know, as we were just saying before the, the role, you mentioned that part of your, your thinking on the, this, this, uh, model of time and, and the sort of attendant philosophies is biographical. And, you know, what it means in terms of the, the biographical revelations that come with accepting the possibility that the future is already out there in whatever way we choose to wrongfully spatialize this. So, uh, I would love to start just, asking how you got into the study of time and uh, what what led you to writing this book? Yeah, well, it's there are multiple answers to that. And I've, I've realized the complexity of, of the answers more and more as uh, I've thought about it as uh, and I've been asked it uh, before. And yeah, yeah, the answer isn't simple. And, and uh, you know, when we were talking just now before the uh, the show, I mean, I was saying how I like to take this out of the realm of the paranormal, but I, ha- I do have to say that it was kind of a paranormal experience that that started me on this, uh, and that was you know almost exactly a year ago. I'm sorry, I was exactly ten years ago. Uh, it was in 2009, summer of 2009. I had a couple of 
UFO sightings. So they were not like, you know, life changing close encounters, but they were, uh, enough to like really pique my curiosity and get me to read about the subject. Okay. And inevitably when you go down that rabbit hole, first of all, you realize, Oh, this is a serious topic. This is not, you know, there are, there are actually some very smart people, right. Who've done a lot of very interesting research on this. It's a real topic, uh, whatever it means or whatever, you know, these objects are, you know, this is, this is something that's, that, that serious people take seriously. And, uh, and inevitably you wind up reading the works of Jacques Vallée, the, the great French American ufologist and computer scientist, uh, and now venture capitalist. <laughs> um, his writings from the 1970s, late sixties onward really sort of took it out, took the subject out of the realm of like, you know, uh, uh, extraterrestrials. I mean, he, you know, that was, that's never, that's not been his thinking, uh, on, on the subject. And it, you know, that just, that idea doesn't really comfortably fit the data very well, but more interesting than that though, he, he links it, uh, he, he, he's always linked it to psychic phenomena. Um, and I was never, you know, I, I have, uh, I, I had a basically, materialist scientific upbringing. My parents were psychologists. I went to grad school in anthropology. And, you know, so I'm sort of steeped in the sciences and I have a sort of basic knee jerk skepticism about ESP. Like I think a lot of scientifically educated people do. I I had no problem with UFOs, you know, as spaceships or whatever that certainly didn't rock my world in any kind of fundamental way. I mean, it was cool, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't, it wasn't a paradigm shift for me, but ESP, I'm going, what, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know that I, I really had trouble with that. And that resistance, uh, to have like someone really smart, like Jacques Vallée taking ESP seriously. I mean, he was, he was right in the thick of the most interesting ESP research that has been done in the last several decades, which was the, the remote viewing research being done at uh, Stanford Research Institute in the 1970s, and, you know, CIA funded. And, and he was basically part of that sort of tangentially. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was forced to confront this really interesting body of science, you know, and uh, but a marginalized body of science that's sort of rejected by many scientists or most scientists don't even know anything about it. Um, but then if they find out about it, they have a knee jerk resistance to it. Um, anyway, so I was forced to confront this and it really wound up, I basically sort of stopped even at that point I was writing a blog and, and writing a bit about UFOs, but I basically kind of put UFOs aside. You know, I realized I was, I really couldn't make any headway, uh, in that, but, ESP really kind of like got bitten by the bug, I guess. And as one does when one starts studying the literature on ESP, one inevitably starts practicing it. You know, one starts, you know, doing remote viewing exercises and things like that. And I had some very striking um, experiences doing that. I realized, hey, this, you know, there's something, there's something going on here. This is real. And, uh, and I also started, uh, realizing that I was having precognitive dreams and that's not something I, and, and this is, I, I should say, I, I've been recording my dreams pretty faithfully. 
for decades. Um, I was sort of steeped in Freud and Lacan and, and people like that back in grad school in the early 90s. Uh, and so I had already a fixed habit of, of recording my dreams, thinking about my dreams, interpreting my dreams through various lenses, depending on my, uh, what phase of life I was in, whether I was turned on by Jung or whatever. But, uh, so I already had a, a, a habit of dream recording. Uh, and, but it, it had never occurred to me to even think about the possibility of precognition in dreams. But I had had some weird experiences, anomalous experiences, you know, including a, a dream that 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 seemed to be precognitive of the 9/11 events. You know, a couple hours before the events, I had a dream that that seemed very related to them, and I swept those experiences under the rug. You know, it's like I didn't have a mental category to fit those in at the time, and I just ignored them. But then, delving into the literature on, on ESP, I. Realized what these were, and then I started looking for them, like sort of act systematically. And boom! I mean, it's just this is an incredibly prevalent phenomenon. And uh, my experience was very consistent with what a lot of other sort of independent researchers have found, beginning with the aeronautical engineer J. W. Dunn about a century ago who noticed he was having dreams that came true within the next few days and started systematically studying it. And he amassed a, a nice body of data on this phenomenon and really made some interesting discoveries about it just from observing his own dreams mostly, but also dreams of people he knew. Uh, and anyway, but a lot of other people have replicated that experiment in their own lives and discovered the same thing. And in fact, People don't know this, but J.W. Dunn's book, An Experiment with Time, uh, which was published in 1927, uh, was incredibly influential on, on writers of the, of the mid 20th century. It was, it was influential on, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, for instance, and C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, uh, Vladimir Nabokov did his own dream experiment, uh, based on, on Dunn. Uh, so there were a lot, it was very influential. Uh, this book and a lot of people, you know, anyone who does this experiment <laughs> discovers he's, he's right. Uh, this is real. So that, that's a long way of answering your question about how I got started, uh, doing that. And so, and you know, my, my research into precognition really, uh, it, I discovered that precognition is really the most fascinating, but also the best supported kind of, uh, uh, type of anomalous psychic experience. Uh, that people report and potentially uh, can explain a lot of other alleged psychic phenomena, like telepathy and clairvoyance, remote viewing, and so forth. I know that you've dedicated a prodigious amount of time to exploring the paranormal dimensions of this, um, but I think, you know, as someone who also prefers having a left brain explanation, you know, and, and, a, and a parsimonious and mechanistic answer for things. I almost, I, I consider the term paranormal to almost be like a slur, you know, like, I mean, it's just, uh, and so at, at any rate, I, I, you know, the, the, the most interesting part of the book for me is as much as I loved reading about the psychoanalytic dimensions 
and the, you know, the historical examples, you know, you give really great examples, uh, from the lives of very famous people, you know, like, uh, people like Norman Mailer or, um, you know, in, in your blog, you talked about Harlan Ellison and, and Star Trek and those, this sort of weird recursive dimension to the way that science fiction writers will often write something that's sort of like a, a displaced version of their own story in, in these mm -hmm. pr pr prophetic ways. Yeah. But like the most interesting part for me was what you called hand waving, the, the second part of the book where you got into the admittedly fringe models and theories and research, but research that kind of can't just easily be swept under the rug. And you approached the work of clinical psychologists and quantum theorists and evolutionary theorists, anticipating the critical response and really guiding people through all of the various sort of statistical arguments that could be used against this and why they don't matter here and offering also, I thought, really important insights into why it is that these phenomena are so difficult to reproduce, how they are, they're often tied into this, the, the neurospecificity of a, of a particular person and their pattern of connotations and, and neural associations. So mm -hmm. at any rate, I would just love to hear you lay out a little bit of how it is that you have come to th where you stand now in terms of like how it may be that this kind of thing is even possible, you know, like if you can, if you can yeah. kind of like hold our hands yeah. into like the new scientific paradigm that you're suggesting here. Right. Um, well, this is a, a, a good, this was a perfect, like, I think point in time. I think I can't, I, I, uh, there's something convenient about this, this sort of juncture in, in, in science, I think, uh, because a lot of, developments in a lot of different fields are sort of converging on this topic of retro causation. Retro causation is kind of a physical principle that would enable something like precognition to occur. And among, you know, a lot of those fields have, you know, the term quantum attached to them. Uh, and I, I, you mentioned the term hand waving. I was very, I was hyper, uh, sensitive to the fact that, you know, oh, you know, here's another, another person trying to say ESP is real by, by bringing in quantum physics. So I, you know, I knew that that was going to be a, a sort of knee jerk reaction, uh, to my book, both from quantum physicists, if any of them even picked up the book, you know, they're like, quantum physicists hate when, you know, people outside the field start banding about the term quantum uh, without knowing anything about it. They just read a few things about entanglement and think, oh, my God, that's the explanation. And, uh, but also from, well, just just from every quarter, I could I could anticipate that that people will um, have problems. So I, I spent you know, literally three years of my life, <laughs> uh, trying to understand as a non physicist, you know, a non mathematically minded person, you know, there's still that, that basic barrier there, but, uh, you know, reading the literature, trying to understand the literature and, and also sort of tracking where the field is going. You know, there are a lot of, I've really come to realize there is no quantum physics. There are like, quantum physicists and they're of a million different stripes and they, they, there is very little consensus 
uh, about what quantum uh, mechanics means and what the measurement problem means. And, and, and there are a million different interpretations, but there are a few interpretations that sort of rise to the top when you sort of sift things, you know, and one uh, that is, you're reading about more and more and more. If you follow the science news, I mean, you know, every month there's some new, someone, someone else making a new argument or showing an interesting experiment, supporting the idea of that causation on a fundamental quantum level is not, you know, this unilinear thing. And you're getting this a lot, especially in quantum computing, the field of quantum computing, which is this, you know, hot new technical field, which is supposed to build these super, you know, super computers um, using quantum entanglement. Problem is, uh, no one yet agrees about how these even work, because no one agrees about what entanglement is, you know? And uh, while you have the sort of standard uh, view that you'll typically read in a, a typical news story about quantum computing, you'll, you'll see that you know, quantum, quantum entanglement is uh, this, you know, amazing pairing of two objects, you know, that are separated in space. But there's another way to look at entanglement. And that is retrocausation. That retrocausation can be used to explain all the sort of spooky aspects of quantum mechanics. And more and more people are, more and more physicists are kind of gravitating to this idea, even though it's really hard to wrap our heads around. It's even hard for physicists to wrap their heads around. Uh, and what, one of the interesting things I discovered was that well, I didn't discover it. Uh, Hugh Price wrote about this, you know, over two decades ago. You know that physicists kind of get wrapped up in this question of free will. You know, they started they 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 themselves, you know, they're supposed to be just sort of following the 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 math and the experiments, but they also sort of get they have this same philosophical baggage that we all have, and they have their own resistances to sort of knee jerk resistances to. Uh, retro causation that maybe they shouldn't, maybe they should sort of set those aside and really see where the science leads them. So, you know, there are just a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to think about retro causation, but the physics from various angles is, is sort of converging uh, on that. I think, I mean, if I had to place, you know, and, I, and I'm sort of being a futurist here, you know, it's in a, in a way it's I'm kind of using my intuition and saying, look, this is where all these lines are, are leading. Not only is it really interesting, but it can potentially explain so much. There's so much power in this idea, uh, not only to explain, you know, how quantum computers may work and and why particles behave so spookily on a on a you know fundamental level, but uh, there's potential application here to the field of quantum biology, another one of the fields with the quantum term attached to it, but that's really exciting. It's right in the infancy uh, right now of explaining biological processes that didn't have explanations before. If retrocausation is part of that, boy, it really opens up a lot of possibilities uh, for explaining all of these dimensions of 
human experience that for you know centuries have just been ignored by science because they violated sort of science's number one rule of no teleology. You know, teleology, this you know causation from the future, was banished by the Enlightenment, um, and in, in a sense, they had a good reason for banishing it because it was at that time it was associated with God. I mean, it's any, any kind of teleological argument, it was assumed to to be God's will somehow, and and Enlightenment science wanted to get rid of God from the picture of causation. Uh, and so it just sort of became this 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 firm rule that that causation moves in a single direction. All of our exp- our explanations cannot invoke some sort of teleological principle. But quantum physics and even Einsteinian physics kind of opened the door to this idea that well, wait, you know, time may not be quite what we think it is. Causation may not be so simple. And that's, uh, I think, I really think that's where where physics is leading. That's potentially where biology is leading. It's it's amazing. You get a lot of retired <laughs> retired scientists, you know, emeritus <laughs> professors, you know, sort of looking back on on their fields and kind of realizing that we need we need some kind of teleological principle to explain you know, what's going on. So, you know, in, in like in physics, you've got people like Paul Davy. Well, like, well, to begin with, John, uh, John Wheeler, you know, was basically arguing for something like this uh, for the last couple decades of his life. Uh, and then Paul Davies has sort of taken up that, that cause um, and making some pretty radical arguments about, uh, about sort of retro causation as, as, you know, a potential explanation for the anthropic, problem okay let's 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 put a pin in this for just a second because i want to i want to give people some like concrete examples and uh, two of the the examples you gave in the book were about like most people are familiar with the double slit experiment Mm -hmm. but uh you know in which they they, is it is it a particle is it a wave right it's the famous object lesson of quantum physics that seems to demonstrate that measurement makes a difference you know that that Mm -hmm. the observer matters in some way right you talk a lot in this book about an experiment that blew my mind when I first read about it, about how someone had just duplicated the grate in the double slit experiment. The experiment was, it, it wasn't too great. It was, they put a laser through a beam splitter and they bounced both halves of the laser beam off a very sensitive mirror that could, that could me- it was so sensitive it could, it could measure the force or the amplification of the light uh, by the deflection, the amount of the mirror was deflected, you know, the, the pressure of the light photon, you know, it was uh, very, very sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they subjected one of the halves of the beam to a second, uh, a second measurement. And then they realized that, that 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 half of the beam that got that second later measurement had deflected the mirror earlier much more than the other half of the beam that didn't get that measurement. So right, right. what that showed was that measurement influences the measured particle in its past and so this is a this is a demonstration of that of retrocausation and how retrocausation reframes the whole measurement problem there's you know typically you'll see a description of of quantum mechanics that objects until they're measured are wave functions you know they're they're 
they're potentially taking every path, you know, and then somehow the measurement causes that wave function to collapse. Well, in a retrocausal model, there's no waviness. We just don't know about the path that particle took because our measurement was part of the history of that, that, that our measurement retro determined that path. So wave function really is just a measurement of our own uncertainty, our own lack of knowledge about how our measurement will have affected that particle in its past. So it becomes very difficult to even talk about this stuff. There's also the, you know, to, to give a, an example out of biology, uh, I'd love to hear you explain real quickly the work on photosynthesis. Because I think right. like photosynthesis mm-hmm. is, I remember when I first found John Joe McFadden's work in 2002 yes. or Fourteen. three, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I was really taken by the elegance that he suggested that this, I mean, he used a totally different, he was using a Copenhagen interpretation version of quantum physics, where he was suggesting that all of this stuff was happening in a you know state of quantum coherence. But his argument was basically that all of these mysterious in, in, in immensely improbable things going on in, in warm, wet living systems make sense if they're regarded as a, as a, a parallel computation that right. decoheres through interaction with the surrounding world. So that like we get this remarkably complex first self-reproducing molecule because it's the only thing that would have like popped the bubble. You know, mm-hmm. and and so there's, but right. but like even that is a little hand wavy, and the and since then we've seen this this badass work with photosynthesis. I'd love to hear you explain real quick. Right, um, uh, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on the name of the researcher who discovered this uh, in, uh, you know, I think it was just in 2007, I believe, that he published on this. He discovered that okay, well, the way photosynthesis works is is that uh, a photon hits. Well, it hits a chlorophyll molecule, and and it liberates an electron from, I think, a magnesium atom in a chlorophyll molecule. I may be getting that wrong, but in any case, it liberates an electron. And the electron somehow has to find its way to the reaction center of the plant cell, which is where it's converted and it helps create sugar, I believe. But the thing is, uh, it ought to be random. Okay, I mean, if if, if this is a a mechanistic universe and a mechanist purely mechanistic uh, process that electron uh, shouldn't know exactly where to go, but somehow it get it goes directly to the reaction center. Now, what this researcher discovered was that this was an example of uh, what is known as quantum tunneling. Now, the standard explanation you will read about quantum tunneling is that an unmeasured particle, of, whether it be a photon or electron, can sort of miraculously pass through barriers or take the shortest possible path to its destination. But another way of looking at it, again, the retrocausal way of looking at it, is that that destination was always part of the destiny of that particle. It was, it was, it, the, the, that, that destination was part of the causal story of that particle. So it's not like it could have gone anywhere else. It had to go there. That's where it, <laughs> it came from in the future. <laughs> in a sense, a particle is carrying information in both directions. Now, one of the things that's that's uh, important to remember here is that a particle, basically, we don't even know what a particle is. Ultimately, it's it's a it's a set of, it's a relationship. You know, it's a relationship between 
you know, an atom that, that shoots its electron out and another atom that receives that electron. It's a relationship uh, of some kind. But that, that relationship has multiple pieces of information attached to it. You know, it has, uh, it has a charge. It has a spin. It has these, these different numbers that you can attach to it. Well, the idea of retrocausation is that some of those, some of those pieces of information are propagating, you know, in reverse, you know, in temporal reverse. So that while the position and momentum and so forth, those kinds of things we can easily sort of picture in our heads if we picture these as little balls, that information is sort of going from, you know, in a, in a, in a linear way that we can understand, like a billiard ball hitting another billiard ball. But imagine if, if the, the, the cue ball hits the eight ball and somehow something about the eight ball, that collision affects the, the cue ball in its past and affects the pool cue hitting it. And the pool cue itself transmits some information back in time to the arm of the person. You know, imagine that causal uh, sort of chain reaction or domino effect going backwards in time as well as forwards in time. So by that explanation, you have this idea of tunneling as this, this kind of way in which, you know, again, it's a retrocausal phenomenon. I think that's a beautiful model of what I think biological systems are going to turn out to be. They're going to turn out to be this scaling up of, you know, this kind of expeditiousness of the quantum world. You know, it's not, things don't, go all in, in random directions and just happen to hit a target. The target is part of their story. So it's not like there's a wave function of a particle scattered around in space and the measurement happens to collapse its wave function. It's that measurement. It could only go to that place where it was measured. That's part of its story. It always was part of its story. So I, I think that thinking in those terms if you if you imagine living systems as sort of built upon this this uh, uh, upon retrocausation as as systems that, that that sort of scale up this this tiny phenomenon in particles, it potentially offers all kinds of explanations for for life. Um, you know, there's a uh, you mentioned uh, John John McFadden, but there's an, another biologist that I'm I'm looking for his book on my shelf, and I'm not seeing it so i'm blanking on his name oh yeah um j scott turner he has a book called purpose and desire and it's a wonderful book you know making the argument that you know life just does not make sense without this kind of he doesn't use the word teleology or retrocausation but he's he's you know using these terms purpose and desire as kind of this there's got to be this this directionality to living processes and you know Ever since the Enlightenment got booted out teleology, you know, the repressed always returns and biologists have again and again and again sort of seen a need for some anti-entropic principle that would help explain life. It's like, you know, you just can't somehow get, you know, it, it just doesn't work <laughs> to, to, to just have the thermodynamic universe that's always cooling down you know, what is it that, that causes matter to assemble in these self-replicating structures that bind energy and so forth and become more and more complex rather than, than less complex? And so you have, you know, you had vitalism in the 19th century. 
And then in the 20th century, you've had various ideas like syntropy was one uh, proposal in the mid-century. Uh, and then, of course, Rupert Sheldrake in the 80s, 90s was you know advancing the idea of morphic resonance as, as somehow this principle that could explain life and so on. Uh, well, I again, my money is on retrocausation and quantum biology and specifically this, this kind of retrocausal interpretation of quantum mechanics is, is going to play a huge role, I think, in helping us understand where life came from. Yeah. Okay, so you know that I... I'm a little bit less hygienic about my day job, night job stuff than you are. And every once in a while on the show, it comes up that I work as a staffer at the Santa Fe Institute, which is this, this, uh, international mecca for complex adaptive systems research. And mm -hmm. they actually have right now a research theme, like a five year research track on complex time. And oh. they're, they're puzzling through this exact thing right now where they're looking at, you know, the typical sort of linear understanding of the arrow of time. But then mm -hmm. they're also looking at it in terms of what they call the adaptive arrow of time, which they, you know, the, the, the paradigmatic framing insists is an emergent property of, you know, the interactions between agents in these, in these systems. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the classic example that I, I was acquainted with in school was autocatalysis, like two enzymes mm -hmm. creating one another and how that might've been sort of a prototypical form of life. And so in that model, and cause I feel like we, it's one of these things where it's like when people try to explain human evolution with aliens, and I'm just like, you don't need to, you know, <laughs> right. like, but in yeah. that, so there's something like that going on here where I feel like that model is asymptotically approaching your model but what we see is on that side of the fence that all of this stuff, this anti-entropic stuff is regarded as the local outcome of a metabolism committed to free energy minimization. You know, so it's like the, the world is in that potentially very cynical view. Um, all of the, the emergent order that we observe is consequence of this it's the fact that it is only accelerating the global entropy. But I've always had a problem with this because there's no place where you can stand outside the system and actually use the definition of entropy, which mm -hmm. relies on this sort of closed box, you yeah. know, talking about things moving from a higher to a lower state of order, you know? Yeah. And so you get in evolutionary biology and, and here we are in the real meat of this, uh, in evolutionary biology, you know, there's a lot of talk about the red queen from, you know, uh, Alice in, through the looking glass, right? Mm -hmm. And how the, the red queen talks about having to run faster and faster just to stay in place, which is used, uh, metaphorically in the evolutionary sciences to discuss evolutionary arms races and mm -hmm. how, like, basically, uh, when, when futurists are talking about Moore's law or, you know, the fact that, mm -hmm. like, you know, Kevin Kelly in his book, What Technology Wants, talks about the evolution of technology as continuous with the history of life on this planet, but in a way that is sort of uh, resonant with mythic themes of the Titans being replaced by smaller, faster gods being replaced by smaller, faster humans replacing ourselves with smaller, faster Silicon life. And, mm -hmm. you know, that works up to a point, but then, you know, you also have, uh, if you're willing to look at it, this like 
massive amount of evidence that there is information traveling back in time. And then, so then, you know, your work, you actually uh, invoked in time loops, the white queen, the other queen (laughs) from, from Alice's story who can remember the future, who sees in both Mm -hmm. directions. And it's interesting to me that there are these two sort of schools of evolutionary thinking and I, that's where I kind of want to drill in a little bit here with you. Um, I think that maybe the best place to start with that is that you actually use the language of evolutionary biology, specifically the notion of selection, to describe yeah. mm-hmm. how it is that we can explain the specific contents of people's precognitive experiences, like why mm-hmm. they're seeing this and not this. And I'd love to hear mm-hmm. you get into that and see how you might see uh, like a red queen and a, and a white queen model sort of working together. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. I hadn't thought about the red queen. I, I love those images that you, that you contrasted there. Um, well, you've asked a lot of questions there. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so I'm not sure like where to begin, okay, so like, wh- but explain, ex- I guess maybe the best place to start would be to have you explain to people the notion of post-selection. Yeah. Post-selection. Okay. So post-selection is it's originally a term that came from quantum computing, and it's this this idea, it's this sort of operation that you do at the at the end of a quantum computing like a, a calculation, uh, which essentially uh, discards all the undesirable like calculations, like all the calculations that didn't get to the right answer. You just throw those out, and what's left is is the right answer. That sounds a little like what? That's like cheating, right? Uh, but this term has then been applied to to some very interesting experiments. For instance, uh, Seth Lloyd, the quantum computing expert, has done some some work sort of on creating like a little mini time machine in a quantum computer circuit. And these experiments use post selection as a way of sort of constraining what. One way to look at it is that it constrains what happened before. Uh, the post-selected uh, post-selection operation, whether it's a retrocausal thing or whether it's creating a correlation between information at time point A and 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 the the uh, post-selected outcome at time point B, and you can talk about it in different ways, but the the basic idea is that it is kind of I look at it as. And I haven't seen this analogy in the in the literature, although I'm sure I'm not the first one to draw this analogy. But it is like Darwinism. It is like a kind of causal Darwinism, uh, in that in that information, uh, the only information that influences the past is information that's not going to lead to its foreclosure in the future. So you start having to think about a time loop kind of thing. So it really creates a, a specificity about what, uh, about how information travels in retrograde, that the, that the only information that can, can have a retrograde component is information that doesn't cancel itself out in the future. That, and another way of putting that is the grandfather paradox. There, you can't have a grandfather paradox situation. You, know, you can't have, uh, you know, think in terms of a time traveler. You can't have a time traveler going back in time to assassinate you know, his grandfather before he was born and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, on, on a level of information, any any informational influence on the future, on the past, has to lead to that outcome where the information was sent to the past. And 
this, what this model argues against is a very common interpretation of precognition that you get in the parapsychological literature, which is that so somehow precognition alerts us to possible futures and a range of outcomes or probabilities, but we're, you know, we, we have free will. Partly this is a way of preserving free will, right? You know, it's like, well, we don't want precognition to lock us in, you know, to in some way. But what the post-selection model uh, is that, no, I mean, it, 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 the future does already exist at time point B, and thus there is no other correct interpretation than of the future than what does happen. Now, our precognitive dreams or whatever, maybe we may misinterpret them. And in fact, this, this model, if you sort of uh, apply it to... Uh, to the world of dreaming, and this is why I bring in Freud because he was the he his theory was the great theory of uncertainty and um, and our ignorance about the meaning of our of our behaviors and including our dreams. Well, it it really makes very beautiful sense of of why we misinterpret our own motives, our own actions, and then behave in ways that lead us to some future outcome that we have foreseen in a dream. Classic um, trope. Classic, yes. Um, well, it's Oedipus. I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the fact that Freud fixated on the, on the Oedipus story, it, there's such, so it's such rich irony in that because uh, it sort of became, of course, his, his famous um, model for human desire and motives that we retain this love of, of our, you know, opposite sex parent and that that's, you know, this kind of motivating force in our lives. But he completely ignored the fact that this is all in the context of a prophecy and of these characters trying to evade these prophecies and that they fulfill the prophecies precisely in the, fa- in the act of trying to evade them. And so, and it's, of course, the, for the ancient Greeks and for many cultures, there's this notion of fate as something that's this, we have a fate, we can't, uh, we can't escape our fate, and the more we try to escape our fate, that's what locks us in to that fate. Well, that's essentially what post-selection means, <laughs> and uh, and that's you know how it work would work on a in, a in a quantum computer circuit. If you wanted to create a sort of precognitive circuit in a quantum computer, it's going to involve something like post-selection. Well, what I'm arguing is that that basically events, at least in our, in our experience, are post-selecting the history that led to them. And, and we can see this operating most readily in precognitive dreaming. Um, that's kind of the easiest way to see this operating, although precognition works in a lot of other ways in our lives, I think. But uh, dreaming is the easiest to see. You talk about in the book how so many of these precognitive dreams feature the survival of the dreamer in some sort of catastrophic event, you know, this, the, the, uh, you, you bring up this French term, uh, jouissance, I think mm-hmm. yep. for, uh, the, the, the painful pleasure, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the joy of having survived a traumatic event. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you, you mentioned that as, uh, that event, the survival is the filter that, that provides that post-selection. Um, yes. But you link that. Okay. So there, there, there's like one thing, which is that it would suggest in some sense that 
biological systems have taken advantage of of retrocausation in order to avail themselves of information that would sort of steer them into scenarios uh, uh, in which they survive or reproduce. Because you also mentioned mm -hmm. the other big one is everyone has like this deja vu when they meet their partner, you know, like right. that, that kind of like, Oh, I've, mm -hmm. I've known you forever. Um, yes. you know, have we met or was it just on Facebook kind of thing? Um, right. but this is again, back to this like red queen, white queen thing. It's like, well, if it is, if, if there is this sort of transcultural understanding that the, the prophets are one eyed, you know, that they're, they're mm -hmm. seeing something in the future, but not mm -hmm. enough to like curtail their own fates. Um, yeah. if it is in fact, uh, a handshake between two different time states that closes itself in a tautological loop, then it's not exactly like a, an evolutionary sort of narrative in that sense. And I'm curious how you, how you would reconcile those. Yeah, well, you have to sort of stop thinking about processes as freely willed and as as organisms as having choices. See, the, 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 see, where where it starts to where it seems puzzling or paradoxical is you're still thinking of an organism as having a range of choices at every given time point and and selecting from the best option. And if in fact an organism like a photon is tunneling to where it's going to go anyway. If there's no free will in this larger sense, you know, I mean, we may experience ourselves as having free will. I mean, that's an interpretation. That's, you know, that's what our, whatever our experience is and what our consciousness means, you know, this doesn't answer those questions. But, uh, but if there's no, if there genuinely is no, free will in the what I call the Minkowski block universe, the sort of four dimensional space time, then there's no problem there. But but you then have to have an asterisk by any any verb, <laughs> any any action verb, you know, is not somehow cutting a new path in in space time. It's it's tunneling to where it's gonna go. So what I do is the way I think about this is I sort of step back and think of processes or our lives or whatever you want to think, you think of it as like formations. And, you know, I grew up in, in the foothills of Colorado and there's, there's all these, you drive through the uh, sort of up into the mountains and there's all these cut cutaways of the mountains and you can see these, the strata, you know, in uh, of, you know, layers of sediment that have, you know, uh, and so on. And you get these formations and you'll get these, you know, interesting, you know, swirling formations or looking at like, or it's like looking at wood, you know, a, a plank of wood, you know, is knotted and has sort of a patterning. Well, that's the way you need to start thinking about processes in uh, unfolding in time. You know, these are, these are formations, you know? So when you're talking about causation, you're really talking about some, you're talking about a formation and a structure, uh, it's kind of a static, structural way of of looking at looking at events. Events are related to each other. We can call that relationship causal, but it's not like it's an action verb. You know, it's not an it's a it's a static kind of perspective. And initially, this sounds people don't like this. I mean, we're, we're we come from a, a very freedom loving culture and civilization. We want 
you know, we want to feel like we're in charge of our fates and, and so on. Uh, one analogy that's been coming to my mind lately is that, you know, we like to think of ourselves as cars. You know, we can go, we can take any turn we want. We're not fixed to a track. But it may be, in fact, that our lives are trains. You know, we may, in fact, be on a, a track that has a single de- destination. Or a driverless and, car. Yeah, or a driver. <laughs> there you go, a driverless car. That's a great, yeah, right. So, yeah, so thinking in these terms sort of forces you to set aside or bracket that concept of free will and open-endedness of, of things and the idea of possible futures or probabilities or whatever. You don't need to – that's that kind of statistical way of thinking. That's an artifact of the fact that physics is a predictive science. You know, physics, you know, you have to – the whole point is not uh, – ultimately is not to – well – quantum physics after the war became this uh, very practical, became a very practical kind of technical thing. So you had that shut up and calculate idea. And, that, <laughs> and that's kind of embedded already in the, in the Copenhagen interpretation, you know, which says, you know, don't, you know, there's no reality until you have a measurement and measurement, you know, collapses the wave function. It sort of takes this probability function and, and makes it something definite. Well, that, you have to you have to have that notion of probabilities and and uh, and so forth in order to to do the the math to make predictions that are efficacious you know that that lead to some some technology or whatever but that doesn't necessarily describe how the world really is and so I think it's important to kind of realize that there's a there was a a very practical pragmatic reason for arguing about probabilities and t- having a statistical approach uh, to physics, but we shouldn't reify uh, those those statistical fictions, things like wave functions and wave functions collapsing. That there's, in a retrocausal universe, that's not necessarily meaningful anymore. Mm. So, so in that, uh, again, to loop back around to this notion of entropy, because, you know, one of, one of my favorite uh, sections in your book is about entropy and the sublime and how, again, like so many of these experiences are about these like insane, intense, explosive events like 9-11 or the sinking of the Titanic, you know, a moment, you know, cathartic or violent experiences. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you make a, a case that naturally our nervous system is tuned to these dangerous occasions. But then again, I mean, maybe it's just sort of like <laughs> the, the, the consequence of the, framework that we grew up in and, and are still sort of vestigially seeing things through, you're still using the language of entropy to describe this stuff. And so, I mean, it's really, it's fascinating to me that like, yes, we can make, we can make a connection between this sort of unsettling apparent choice that a subatomic particle is making and say, oh, actually quantum indeterminacy is just future information that we lack this, the semantic context to interpret. And that's extremely elegant and parsimonious. And I really like it. And then you can make the case that, that randomness is really just the horizon of whatever perceptual system or, or theory, you know, that I actually gave this presentation at SFI. I gave a presentation about the thermodynamic model of evolution Mm-hmm. And how what it suggests is that we're only as smart as we have to be. And that right. because of that, 
there's a lot of what we call in in like statistical physics terms you hear about environmental stochasticity is just mm. you know the the <laughs> the phd way of saying shit we don't understand well, but, I like I, that yeah. that notion that we only have to be as smart as we have to be. That's I, I think is really key. And and um, if you think about it, if you realize that this is what a life is really doing, and B, if this is what nervous systems are really doing, are sort of being these processors of information across time that are and sort of directing the the organism through this kind of path of least resistance uh, and this path of kind of survival uh, through some more sort of landscape of, of obstacles and opportunities, four-dimensional landscape of obstacles and opportunities. If you think of it that way, it would totally, it would totally reframe our understanding of psychology, wouldn't it? I mean, because it would, it would, you know, we would realize that this notion, we, I think we implicitly have this idea that, you know that our brains are somehow these these massive uh, Swiss Army knives that give us the ability to manage any situation at any at any juncture. But if what they're really doing is guiding us to where we're already going <laughs> in some larger four dimensional sense, then that's not what you know our brains need to do. Our brains don't need to be that versatile. You know, they just need to get us to a certain point where something that we need is available and it's, and it may be available in our, in our environment, not from in our heads, you know, it may be, you know, it actually, I think disburden our brains of a lot of the kind of uh, tasks that we assume that it has to, you know, it has to carry around these massive memories and so forth. But what if, you know, we, we're imagining that we have all this stuff in our heads when in fact we're just finding it at each stage in, in this, in this landscape as we move through it. It offers a different way of thinking about what the brain might be doing if if this is if this model proves true. So that's why I liked. I'm, I sort of interrupted you, but that's why I liked what you said about. Um, I forget what your phrasing was, but uh, the organism only has to be as smart as it needs to be in a given at a given moment. And I think that is a one way of saying what I'm. What well, I'm yeah, bringing the bringing the quantum tunneling piece back in does sort of suggest it. Uh, a potential bridge between a thermodynamical model of evolution and a teleological model of evolution. And I think maybe for now, let's just leave it there. Uh, but there's something else that I want to remove the pin that we placed in this conversation earlier and talk about the anthropic principle, because uh-huh. one of the things that your model is definitely not is a many universe interpretation of quantum physics. Right. And, um, you and Eric Davis and I, I just was so delighted to have this exchange with the the two of you on Twitter about this, about how I so respect in your work that you are devoted to the simplest explanation, whether it is a challenge to the paranormal metaphysics, or it's an attempt to cut through the thicket of alternating explanations of quantum physics there is this desire to see things in the simplest possible way. And in this conversation, you and I, I think, found uh, what do not seem to be incompatible, simplest possible explanations. But I feel like Occam's razor guided us to two different places. And I think that that's an interesting place to go. So I'd love to hear you talk about Mm -hmm. why 
a little bit about the anthropic principle for, for people who I can't, I don't know. I'm constantly like overshooting what I assume people know on this show. So <laughs> if you want to just well, introduce yeah, that. Sure. And, yeah. Sure. The, the anthropic, uh, cosmos is, or the, the anthropic, I'm not sure principle is the right word, but it's this. It was an observ, you know, multiple observations in cosmology that the universe perfectly tuned for life rising. And that if the, even, you know, if, if any of, if various parameters of the physical world or physical law were even slightly different, there would be no possibility of, of complex molecules forming and life arising and so forth. Um, and so this has three explanations. One explanation is God in some sense. And the second explanation, which most people sort of gravitate to, um, uh, is that, well, there are infinite universes, and so there's nothing strange about the fact that we live in a universe that's suited to life. You know, we, obviously we wouldn't arise in one of those infinite range of other universes. So that also takes away the strangeness of it, okay? And since it doesn't involve God, that's preferable to most scientists to kind of settle on that one. But there's a third one, and this is the one I mentioned Paul Davies earlier. He's been sort of an advocate of this of this third view, which is the retrocausal view, that the laws, you know, that were sort of established in those first moments of the Big Bang, maybe that was not just kind of random. There may have been an influence from the future on that. And so Paul Davies, you know, very mind-blowingly for a, you know, mainstream business. He's one of those, I, I love Paul Davies because he's one of those, uh, you know, he's a mainstream scientist, but who, who kind of walks this tightrope and says some really, really out there things. And he sort of argues in his uh, book, I believe the Goldilocks Enigma, he suggests at least that one explanation for the, the anthropic principle could be that, that there's this natural direction of evolution toward the formation of, of intelligences and super intelligences, and that at the end of time, you know, all intelligence in the universe might merge and form this sort of godlike superintelligence, which which could that you know exert a retro causal influence on everything that went before and on history and so forth. Um, and he's sort of extrapolating from his uh, from from John Wheeler's uh, argument. John Wheeler. Um, sort of focused on the idea that, well, observation, you know, if, if you can, you know, determine, you know, characteristics of a photon uh, through measurement, well, then theoretically, you're measure, you know, you're observing, you know, just seeing the light from a distant galaxy should be exerting an, an influence, a retrocausal influence, because that's traveling back in time, right? I mean, you're influencing that photon before it even left that you know, galaxy or star or whatever that's that's billions of light years in the past, okay? Um, so Davies is kind of extrapolating on that. And uh, and given the sort of research, I mean, that and that book was, uh, it was over a decade ago. So uh, given the research that has come along just in the past decade on, on retrocausation, uh, more and more people are kind of getting on board with this idea of retrocausation and we're seeing it demonstrated in quantum computers. I think this is a really rich area for, I think, 
well, speculation. I mean, all, that's all we can do at this point is speculate. But uh, if there is indeed this kind of telos toward the formation of, you know, first of all, life out of uh, lifeless matter, and then intelligence out of life, and then some sort of super intelligence, post-human, whatever, whatever comes next, if there's this kind of natural progression, and that each of these emergent kind of systems can act back on the, the principles underneath it, uh, you know, potentially these, these, you know, this super intelligent, you know, for, for instance, here's a, here's a concrete example. Very likely we will develop time travel. Okay. Either we will develop it or our post biological descendants will develop it. But even, you know, theoretically, if the retrocausal interpretation is correct, Theoretically, a quantum computer is a kind of time machine in the sense that it can send information backwards in time. And I argue that that's what our brains are doing anyway, that maybe that's what all brains are doing. So that's not really a radical uh, proposal. But then if you, if you know, at some point you develop the, the capability to actually send objects back through time, for instance, in wormholes or whatever, um, that's a modality for influencing the past. And if, and if that's, you know, and then you extrapolate from that technology, that opens the door to events or intelligences at the end of time, whatever that means, acting back and influencing things potentially as early as the Big Bang. So there's this, this idea that time could be this, again, this big block where one end is influencing, both ends are influencing each other. It's not, there's this, not this one linear causation going from one end to the other. So that's a third explanation for the anthropic principle that most people, again, don't like because it's, <laughs> it, open, it, it seems to close down and get rid of free will and we don't want to do that. But, you know, there's so many arguments uh, in favor of, <laughs> of this and that free will quibble uh, seems like less and less of a, uh, a reason to ignore these very interesting possibilities. To annotate this with some science fiction, this idea has been treated very well in uh, Greg Egan's novel Distress, which is specifically about the the work of physicists to arrive upon a final theory of everything. And then terrorists become convinced that a theory that includes itself in the theory would sort of like tie a bow on the cosmos and end it and that that would sort of that would be the goalpost at the end of time this shows up in olaf stapledon's star maker from you know a widely mm -hmm. regarded by a lot of the, the same folks that were you know you, you mentioned uh, asimov in your your book uh, asimov talks about how he was deeply influenced as was mm -hmm. lovecraft as was arthur c clark um, all regarded as totally visionary and prophetic authors uh, mm -hmm. by this guy, Olaf Stapledon, who wrote this book in the early 30s about this sort of same cosmology. I do I do have to give a little bit of lip service to uh, to that Twitter discussion where I suggested I was like, I with full respect for the way that seeking a simplest possible explanation has brought you to this position. Uh, I have been antagonizing scientific thinkers for years with the proposition that we're looking for the simplest possible explanation, the equation that tells us why this and not that. And that maybe, maybe the anthropic principle is actually better explained, you know, not better explained than 
number three, which you just laid out, but better explained than number one by number two, which is that all possibilities do exist and that there isn't another side of the equation that we have to balance at all. There's no and not that. And while it seems as though your take on these things doesn't require it, it also doesn't seem to annihilate that possibility. Like we don't get a, a, a garden of forking paths, you know, like you do in the multiverse model where every choice is made necessarily, but you kind of alluded to the possibility that, that these two views were compatible. I was just being nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Cause like I'm a, I'm a lot, you know, I'm probably more transparent about my psychedelic history on this show than I should be. But, uh, I know I've brought up a couple times, uh, the first time I ever took DMT in 2008 and the, the Vista exposed to me in that experience was one in which the present moment was a kind of security contract between a past and a future that it is the intersection of information of compatible information flows. And yet that didn't obviate the possibility of other pasts and futures with which these, you know, histories traveling whichever direction are incompatible. And so, I mean, do you just regard that kind of thinking as untestable and therefore unscientific or like what's your I have, well I have no I have no problem with with untestability as a you know there's there's a lot of you can't boot out possibilities just because they're untestable and that's actually one of the premises of my book is that that when you're talking about meaning-centered phenomena for instance human behavior <laughs> you know or dreams you know it's like you there's always you can only get so far with the kind of pop popperian science that that you know, requires replication and, and uh, falsification. You know, that, that can only get you uh, so far. And, you know, a lot of uh, important theories right now are not testable. I mean, like string theory and, you know, a lot of theories in, in physics and cosmology are not directly testable. So you have to use other, other you know, you have to use reason, you know, just to, to kind of weigh how strong they are. So on that basis, I, I, that's no basis for, for rejecting that hypothesis. I don't see a need for it. Uh, and I find it really interesting to force my brain to think about a single history. And what that forces me, first of all, it's a magnificent con. You know, I'm, no, I may, I, it may not get me as high as DMT, but it, it's, it can even really get high on, forcing your brain to think about this stuff and retrocausation in a really, really rigorous way. I mean, it's, there's no better Zen koan than, than this. Uh, first of all, the austerity, I don't history. see that. Yeah. And the thing is what, what you're replacing those alternate histories with is alternate interpretations of a single history. And it forces you to question what does knowledge mean? What is knowledge? What does it mean to know anything? What does it mean to measure something and to have a piece of knowledge about, you know, the position of a particle that we didn't have a minute ago? What does that mean? And does knowledge affect 
reality or contact reality. I mean, you, you know, this, uh, it sort of forces you to be, to become kind of like, you know, to sort of channel, you know, Wittgenstein here and channel, you know, a lot of other, you know, great figures in Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. Uh, one of my disappointments, frankly, with a lot of the physical literature, a lot of physics is that a lot of physicists who are sort of, uh, sort of readily to sort of accept the sort of <clears throat> Copenhagen interpretation are not, I think, adequately kind of thinking philosophically enough about the meaning of of knowledge and measurement and what what it means to add to our knowledge through a measurement. And I think it's that kind of failure to think through that problem a little bit that kind of results in what I see as sort of a superstition, this sort of superstition of the wave function and its collapse upon measurement. I think that's a, I, I really see that as a superstitious view. I think the, the retrocausal interpretation is, is just, it's, it's more parsimonious. It's, it's lovely, you know, it's beautiful. And it's certainly not my own theory. I'm just sort of popular. I'm trying to popularize it, you know. Uh, but it's beautiful in a way that Einstein's theory is is beautiful, and it and it meshes with that. So that's you know uh, that has that going for it. And it's it's difficult. It's inc- it is really difficult. But when you push through that difficulty, it's like wow, like vistas open up. It's like again, it's like it's it's a great con. Uh, so what I, what I always do is I ask people to just you know. You don't have to give up on free will or many worlds or multiverse or whatever. You don't have to get out and give up on that, but just set it on a shelf. You know, I have like a little mental shelf when I'm meditating, you know, just like something, some intrusive thought I don't want to deal with now, but I don't want to say no to it. I just put it on, on a shelf there, you know, and, and it's sitting there on the shelf and I can take it down when I'm done, you know, and take it back and nothing has changed. But I just ask people to take their belief in these reassuring ideas like free will multiverse, many worlds, whatever, put it on a shelf and kind of put yourself in this mindset and just see what happens. It creates a wedge that really cuts to the heart of a lot of interesting philosophical questions, I think, in very interesting ways. Yeah, but this question of knowledge, you know, what, what, is, what do we really know? And, and that, that, I think, really is, is a, a major barrier to thinking realistically about things like time travel. You know, we have this notion that the past is somehow fixed and thus it can't be changed, which I agree with. You can't change the past, but you can influence the past. And that's a different thing. And what that amounts to is discovering that is altering, updating your knowledge about the past and how the past really worked and seeing something new in the past that you didn't see before. And that thing, that new thing that you may see in the past is your own influence in the present upon that past. That's one of the things that you can sometimes detect in precognitive dream work that's so mind-blowing and so powerful and spiritual is when you see evidence in a recorded dream of yourself looking back at that dream in hindsight. I mean, if that dream precognized your own looking at the dream from the present perspective that is mind-blowing, and that you can have that experience doing precognitive dream work. And, and I, but I, I see that as sort of a model for thinking about time travel, because if that's real, then there's no barriers to time travel. But what time travel means is we will be updating our 
interpretations of the past and realizing that we were always influencing our past and our past history may be full of time travelers from the future, but that just wasn't part of our, our model. And we didn't, we couldn't see that. So we interpreted things in a different way. So you, it forces reinterpretation. Uh, so I use the word hermeneutic a lot in my book uh, because it, it really knowledge is a matter of interpretation and reinterpretation and, and it's sort of interpretations all the way down, you know? So yeah, it's a, it takes you in very interesting philosophical directions. You have a great passage in this book on the weird, which you bring up here. I mean, the cover of your book has a Mobius strip on it, which has an integrated twist. And then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I, I invited uh, my friend JF Martell, the co-host of weird studies into that Twitter thread they were recently just talking about William James, who was a very daring, risk-taking kind of a right. scientist. In in some ways, kind of a Paul Davies type dude, mm-hmm. more so. They had a quote a in the recent episode of Weird Studies about the, uh, the work of William James. To no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. Something escapes the best of us, not accidentally, but systematically, and because we have a twist. And like they left that piece of the quote out of the episode, but I went to look it up and it was like, son of a bitch. There it is. It was just and like because about, we have a twist. Yes. And because we have a twist, you in the your blog post about dream paleontology, you talk about this. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, maybe just real briefly, that's that's such a, a potent example of what you're talking about. Wow. That well, dream. that's uh, can you read that quote again? Because what, what you said. Yeah, read that quote again. To no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. Something escapes the best of us, not accidentally, but systematically. You know, well, that right there is Freud. Okay, I mean, you know, yeah. something escapes the best of us, not accidentally, but systematically. That is Freud. And part of my goal in this book, in part three of my book, was to, to show why Freud was already giving us a theory of precognition, but he just didn't, he just misrecognized what it was he had. I mean, his, his theory of the unconscious is really a theory of precognition, but he's just localizing this information as somehow buried in our heads already or from our past. Whereas in fact, I'm arguing, no, he, it's our responses to our future that he's, he's describing and theorizing. And, uh, so, but I love that that statement because I mean I don't know when when he said this quote. Well, I think that, it's like eighteen ninety or something. Oh right, just, yeah. okay, so that's wonderful. And then, but the twist thing—that's that's just wild. <laughs> so he says not accidentally, which is not by chance, randomness, mm-hmm. or quantum indeterminacy, but right. systematically, and because right. we have a twist. And so you talk about I, I bring all this up, I guess. If pe- I guess if people want to read about this amazing dream that you had, they can go to thenightshirt.com and read mm-hmm. that. But I bring all this up because this thing about the weird and the twist and the, the Mobiusness of mm-hmm. it, my friend, Richard Doyle, a kind of a mentor author of Darwin's pharmacy, which is another one of these books. Like you, you mentioned J Scott Turner's purpose and desire. It's, it's a masterful work on the evolutionary process in an attempt to reinclude the attention and to make evolution about a an attention manifold in the same way that like a you know Einstein's space time manifold that mating occurs you know uh, natural selection through the the participation of conscious agents and he talks a lot about the symbiotic component of evolution in terms of 
us needing to get over this notion that there is an interior and an exterior, that there is like an, that there is in this sort of modernist sense, you know, an inviolable mental part of things. And then this sort of in the world body part of things. And he, he explains this through, you know, the way that mind language and biology are all sort of, uh, interpenetrating or implicated as perspectives on a single sort of, uh, single phenomenon transcendent to the language we have to describe it. But like, there's something about the weird. And then specifically you bring up the, the, the witches of Macbeth and the three fates in Greek mythology and the anima in Jungian psychology and how all of these things are the self displaced, you know, in some mm -hmm. way that the fate is mm -hmm. our own displaced biography that we, you know, that people struggle mm -hmm. to claim as their own. And I was reading this book and I've had such a bizarre, lengthy and intimate engagement with my own psychological anima over the, the last 15 years. And it's linked to work that this, this essay Matthew Fox wrote theologian, Matthew Fox wrote a, a, a couple years, many, many years ago called the return of the black Madonna. And he talks about the divine feminine archetype associated with repressed peoples, marginal philosophies, excretion and waste, you know, the taboo. And like throughout your entire book, you talk about retrocausation and its linkage to the Oedipal complex as this like Im immensely taboo thing that a patriarchal scientific paradigm can't wrap its head around precisely because we're preoccupied with this phallic notion of the arrow of time. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we're coming into this, this inclusion of a time loop, which is like a, uh, I, I don't know how to say this politely, like a, a like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't. <laughs> You know, there, there, there appears to be a sort of tantric yeah. intercourse going on right. here where yes. this theory is rearing its head or encircling us, perhaps, in its evidence as a sort of manifestation of this dark goddess archetype. Yeah. And then, and you know, naturally, that's something that would emerge, as Phil Dick said, from the trash stratum. Right. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm working right now with a, a highly precognitive a uh, woman uh, for work on a sort of collaborating on a project. And she, uh, she has just some, these amazing precognitive dreams. And uh, she, she precognized, I think this conversation right now, because, <laughs> because yeah, she had a series of dreams about, about herself as a black Madonna. Uh, that we were just like discussing like literally a couple days ago. No shit. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Yes, this, uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, I have, you know, sort of a love hate relationship with Jung, as you could probably tell from the book, but, uh, you know, it's a, as an archetype, it's a, it's a really, um, a really powerful one, the idea of the Black Madonna. And, and, uh, in fact, you know, if there was another source of my ultimate source of my interest in these topics, it was probably Falconelli, the alchemist, uh, the French alchemist who wrote about, uh, the black Madonnas in the basements of of, of uh, French cathedrals like Notre Dame, uh, which sadly just burned. But right. uh, yeah. But so okay, so that okay, so that's the thing, right? The black Madonna, the dark mother, and then of mm -hmm. course the the Notre Dame fire occurs. Uh, I think two. 
I don't know. I, I again, I'm I'm sort of t- almost schizotypally tuned to the the anomalous, but mm-hmm. it happened just within a few days of us getting the first black hole photo. Right. And so we have this ring of fire with a black hole in the middle of it. And then, and and so I don't know, there's, uh, you do a good job in your book of taking apart the Jungian notion of archetype. And so I'm curious, like, I don't know, just off the cuff, no, no permanent binding to this improvised interpretation, but like, how do you make sense of the frequent appearance of this figure in this kind of a, a conversation and like, how do you understand this psychodynamically when you, when you introduce retro causation into it? Like, are we really, um, what is it that we're intuiting here? Well, I speculated about this on my blog a few years ago. Um, and this was after the film Under the Skin came out, because Under the Skin is a beautiful yes. archetypal sort of expression of this. In fact, the final image of the of the alien who's taken off her Scarlett Johansson suit and is this black, oily, black Madonna kind of figure. It's, I think what it is expressing is this kind of intuition that under the surface of reality is this potent, dangerous, incredibly fecund, fertile, amorphous, feminine thing. And it's what the alchemists called prima materia, the first matter, which also means first mother. And if Falconelli, you know, talked about this, uh, these black Madonnas in the, in the crypts of cathedrals as sort of expressing this first principle or first matter that the alchemists shape and, and work into something. But that idea is implicit, you know, I talked about the wave function and wave functions collapsing as a superstition, but I mean, I, I'm, I, 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 it's based on, I think, this old archetype of this kind of under the skin of, you know, unobserved, there's this, this incredible potentiality, and that it's when you bring things to the light of day that they're sort of not killed, but it, it, it kills that, that, it, that, that sense of possibility. And somehow alchemy was working with this, these two principles, you know, this kind of solar masculine principle and this kind of lunar dark principle of potential. And I really think that that same idea is, is, has totally informed uh, this sort of Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics. But, you know, I think that it's, we need to realize it's an image. It's not, the truth may be much more complex. I mean, that darkness may not be this kind of wave function of potentials. It might be our own ignorance of how we will have influenced the past. I mean, that's that, it's that, the, the past that's, that's ripe for our influence, not our change, but our influence. And, and so I sort of am starting to think of that Black Madonna archetype as kind of this archetype of our relationship to history in four dimensions and in fourth dimension. So, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's interesting that you brought that up because I have been thinking about this this image the last few days. Well, I might as well pin on this. You're, you're a precog. Well, I, I mean, the thing is, actually, since 2010, I have been experimentally... 2010 is when I started experimentally engaging my intuition by asking yes-no questions. Should I turn left? Should I turn right? Should I change lane? Mm-hmm. Should I stay put? Mm-hmm. And... 
you know, come to think of it, actually, it was that same. And I mean, I, I talk about this, like, you know, people think that I'm, you know, I must be like doing drugs all the time, but no, it's, it's like these few potent experiences, that same experience in 2008 is when I encountered the image of this being that I later came to associate with this particular feminine presence in my life who has been in at various points associated with very bizarre stuff like poltergeist stuff appearing in other people's dreams. And it took me years to sort of connect the dots and realize that this, this was all sort of one phenomenon and that it had something to do with my own displaced psychic energy or whatever you want to call it. Like my own, my own shadow, my own repressed or unconscious, uh, you know, some component of my false self. And she appears in other people's dreams as a woman in black. But at any rate, this was, this was the voice that I was hearing whenever I inquired, when I indulged the possibility that I could receive information about future events somehow. And I started listening to them. And the interesting thing, like you're saying, is that the more attuned I became to the information I was receiving and the more I was convinced that its valence held some sort of personal reward that it was it was oriented toward best you know best outcomes that the choice component disappears and you're no longer asking what should i do but what will i do right because mm -hmm. the you know you you get at least you know i did i got comfortable with it to the point where i stopped systematically disobeying it just to see what would mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, this is something that, that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And again, although I didn't really think to bring this up, it does tie back to the red queen and the white queen, because those three mm -hmm. forms, you know, the black fluid, the red fluid and the white fluid are sort of like mm -hmm. the three magical fluids, especially associated with, you know, three different schools of feminine magic. You mm -hmm. know, and there's something very, very mm -hmm. puzzling in, in associate between this and by the way, cut me off anytime. Like we're, we're just like off the rails now, but like, <laughs> yeah. there's something about connecting this to, um, like the Morrigan, you know, in Arthurian myth and, mm -hmm. and also to like you brought up under the skin, it seems as though the black Madonna is, retur is returning in Matthew Fox's sense emerging in, in consciousness at the same time as retrocausation is presenting scientific inf evidence of itself to us at the same time that we have this insane bender of black ooze related films, you know, be it X-Files mm. or Prometheus or whatever. And in, in every case, it is this deadly hyper fertility, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I want to, I forget that. I want to ask you sort of in, in the sort of most substantial and meaningful ways, you know, to look, to look forward into a scenario in which this has replaced the phallic arrow of time as a dominant paradigm. And there is some sort right. of alchemical balance and it may be you're the sort of canary in the coal mine as somebody who's actively practicing this way of living and being how do you imagine it's going to change people individually but also 
like socially and culturally if we were to accept mm. this? Like, I mean, let's just take yeah. it for granted that this is going to happen. Right. So what's that world going to look like for people? Yeah. Um, well, individually, the power of precognition, recognizing your own precognition and experiencing it, is this really enhanced sense of your own biography. This sort of sense of yourself as having a kind of four-dimensional unity um, that I think we tend to think of our lives as just meandering from one place to another, kind of maybe going in a random direction or maybe following some plan deliberately, but uh, we don't think of there being this sort of composition or compositional unity to that line, that that thread of our life or this biography. And what you start to discover when you when you delve into this, and it helps to have a you know a long practice of recording your dreams or or keeping a diary, whatever. I mean, recording your life, recording your thoughts, recording your dreams, and so forth is is really important. And I cannot stress enough. You know, my I say on the last page of my book, if you take nothing else away from this book, keep a dream diary. Keep a dream diary. You know, no matter how stupid your dreams may seem record them because because you will be amazed and then when when you start to have years of dreams built up and decades of dreams built up man it is a powerful powerful it is your time machine essentially but you start you get this you know when you start to to tell uh how you right now having some powerful realization or having some powerful experience how this was preflected in some dream or some some experience or some thought that you had, you know, a year ago or ten years ago or three decades ago, you know. And of course, you know, a skeptic is going to leap in and say, "Oh my, you know, there's so much, you know, forget, you know, any hope of being objective." Here. Well, that's why it's good to have those records, because it's like it's one thing to say, oh, I dreamed about this moment, you know, three decades ago. It's like, yeah, right. But then if you pull out your dream diary and show a person, you know, even if you're not doing this to, to prove to skeptics, to prove to yourself that you're not crazy, that you're not just seeing patterns and, and nothing is. I mean, it's just it's very powerful. And you start to see patterns like. One one thing that I I didn't go into too much in the in the book, uh, I didn't go into the nuts and bolts of precognitive dreaming too much in the book. But you'll see calendrical resonances. You'll see that you dream about a significant event exactly a year beforehand, or exactly two years beforehand. You know these dates, you know, keep coming up because somehow in our hippocampus we're keeping these these calendrical maps along with our spatial maps, and uh, and so. So times resonate, you know, or same times of the day resonate. Uh, so when you start det- detecting these these sinews of our of our unconscious, or these sinews of our of our mental experience, they extend across years of our lives, and they go back, you know, even to childhood potentially. You realize, wow, it's like we're not, you know, I'm I'm fifty. I just turned fifty two, and you know that feels like an awfully far 
like I'm awfully far away from the person I was when I was 10. Say, well, when you start to, to study this, you start to realize maybe not. I mean, maybe that 10-year-old is right there, and maybe me and however many years is right there, and we're all, you know, sharing the same brain, and the brain, that brain is a quantum computer, and it's a, it's a tesseract, you know, it's, it's, it's mesh, merging, you know, images and, and information from across our, t- our lifespan, and that it's all right there somehow, and the, the problem is interpreting it. And we're never going to interpret it correctly until an event happens that like, oh, that's what that meant. But uh, it's, it's very, it's very powerful. And, um, and I'm not the first to say this. I mean, other, you know, a lot of, more and more people are writing about precognition now. And, and it's like this sense of your biography becomes very, uh, very powerful. It's much more powerful than this idea that we're all going to become superheroes and we're going to, you know, make a killing on the stock market or, or whatever, uh, that's not what it's about. We're already intuitive creatures. I mean, this is, this is a basic principle that's guiding us through life. So can keep following your intuition, all that. Keep doing whatever you do that gives you pleasure and that you're skillful at because that's where you're engaging these precognitive capacities. You know, creativity is a great one. Art, art, creativity, writing. That's, you know, you're, you're, we're pulling from our futures when we're doing that. But, on a collective level, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, particularly in the, the world in the state that it's in right now, it's, it feels hopeless and, and like we want, we need some, something to, to cure, uh, cure the ills. And I don't know that, that this can cure every ill, but one thing it can do is, is by giving you this enhanced sense of your own individual life. I think, you know, anything that enhances the value of human life right now is what we need. I mean, this, the, the, the world has sunk into this, you know, materialist, uh, dystopia, you know, really, where I think a lot of it is that people don't have a sense of the worth of certainly other people's lives. And I think that comes from not having a sense of the worth of, of their own lives. So anything that can enhance that sense of your own you know, uniqueness and uh, the magnificence is a good thing uh, and potentially powerful. And I can't say exactly in what way it could be powerful uh, for society, but it's certainly it's certainly a, a deeply spiritual, uh, I think, experience uh, for me. Certainly, you you, uh, you dispense with the uh, the indeterminacy, but you gain understanding. Yeah. So in, mm-hmm. in a way you've got almost, you know, you, it is a very reasoned or reason flavored argument, you know, one that's mm-hmm. like, like not to, uh, I, I almost hate bringing this guy up, but like Richard Dawkins unweaving the rainbow. It's like, no, it's, it's actually more, there's, there's more beauty in mm-hmm. this because it, it exfoliates a deeper layer of mystery and, and the mystery mm-hmm. is itself bottomless. And that's, mm-hmm. so, I mean, but again, there's like rubber meets the road kind of, everyday implications of this like our legal system would have to change right like because i mean right now it's all sort of contingent on the notion that we yeah you know that we're responsible well i don't think it's i don't think it's i don't you know yeah yeah in 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 theory but yeah right i mean as 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 our sense of human nature changes over the next few centuries. I mean, but a lot of, a lot of other factors are going to change 
are, are going to change it uh, in the same way. I mean, artificial intelligence and and our relationship to <clears throat> to our bodies and to to, to machines and yeah, you know, a million different transformations are going to be changing our legal system uh, in the next you know. 100, 200 years if, if we don't destroy ourselves. Uh, so yeah, that's, I don't, that's not problematic, you know? Yeah. Mm. Bring it on. <laughs> you know. There's a, there's a theme in your book about, you talk about people who are attached to the idea of free will are resistant to the idea of retrocausation, but you also bring up a couple of examples of people who were eager to embrace the idea because some horrible thing had happened to them, uh, that, and, and, you know, like actually, you know, you talk about this with Freud specifically, like that, that maybe this is part of why he softened up on the, uh, paranormal phenomena as he got older because he was more willing to accept a frame that would grant him some absolution. And I'm, I'm, well, curious, I'm yeah, yeah. The, the Freudian case is, is that speculation on, on, yeah. on my part based on, on the fact that he developed this horrible oral cancer that he had precognized in a dream, you know, a very important dream he had in, you know, almost 30 years earlier. Uh, but that's, I'm, I'm doing a lot of supposition in that case, but there are a couple of other cases that are a little more clear cut and that's, um, the writer Morgan Robertson, who wrote the, the, the famous novel Futility that sort of predicted the Titanic disaster, um, he was, uh, he was, he, he had, uh, an alcohol addiction his whole life, really struggling his whole life, and he couldn't get his life together ever, never could really quite put food on the table for his wife and so forth. I mean, he had a lot of sources of suffering. And, uh, and it's sort of uncanny the way he, he would predict, predict things in his stories and, you know, experience all these synchronicities sort of guiding him in life. And, and I, it doesn't at all negate that he was precognitive to say that it served a purpose for him to express his precognition in the way he did, uh, which was to gain uh, absolution, you know, that, that in the block universe, <clears throat> Things can't can't have been otherwise, and so it's not your fault, you know, that that you screwed up in in some big way, or became addicted to a substance, or whatever is your sort of personal shame uh, in life. It's not your fault in a in a block universe where there's no free will, right? Um, and the exact same, and, and it wasn't. I'm not the first to make that argument for Morgan Robertson. That was uh, I'm basing that on a uh, psychoanalyst and parapsychologist named Jewel Eisenbud who wrote about him in the early 80s. But uh, that same pattern fits the case of uh, Phil Dick just perfectly because the same, so you sort of get the same story with Phil Dick. I mean, lifelong addiction, ruined five marriages, just a really suffering person. I mean, he carried all this suffering from the death of his twin sister when he was in infancy you know, but it was a story that his mom kept telling him and just left him with his guilt and this, you know, he just had a lot of issues, deeply neurotic guy. Uh, and then mining that suffering and neurosis in these, in this sort of frenetic writing. Uh, and because he was poor, you know, basically struggling for most of his life, he had to like churn out these stories and, and his stories just kept producing these precognitive 
things. I mean, he was precognizing things one one event after another, uh, both in culture more generally, but also just in his own life. And he's left us a lot of, you know, dream journals and things like that so we could, like, really see how this worked in his life. And, yeah, he was, like, the full-on precog straight out of his stories. But, again, I argue that, that you know, if, the standard interpretation of Phil Dick is that, oh, his stories present, you know, this all these shifting realities, sort of the many worlds kind of thing, right? Um well, I argue that well, that's the that's the suffering world he he wanted to escape. I mean, I I, I argue that he was really he he really wanted absolution from all of that, and that precognition was kind of it kind of feeling like he was a precog out of one of his stories kind of absolved him of some of that guilt, the you know for for all the problems that he carried with him through his life. And again, again, it doesn't that does not. That argument, that kind of sort of psychodynamic argument, doesn't doesn't negate at all that he was really a precog. It doesn't say that you know uh, that this is a fantasy on his part. Uh, I think it, it was very real, but I think that some people were willing to embrace it and and express it outwardly. And I think people who have a lot of guilt, maybe in their life uh, for whatever reason, may be more prone to express it. That's at least a, a hypothesis, a working hypothesis for me. That does seem. Um, I don't know. You've you've been with me for two hours and indulged an ent- and <laughs> a large number of batty uh, riffs. So I want to wrap this up, and and I want to wrap this up in a way that feels uniquely perfect for you, in spite of the fact that I ask this at the end of almost every conversation, which is that this entire show is predicated on the notion that there are more people alive studying an ancient city like Athens or Babylon than we're actually living. in in those cities and that, you know, that sort of lends itself to this notion that, uh, yeah, that this, there's this intense influence that maybe, you know, these cities weren't just important for the effect that they left, but important precisely because so many eyes are on them. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, which begs a kind of a similar question about this moment now and how we stand in relationship to not, our, the future of our own four-dimensional brain line, but mm-hmm. the future past that line. And what does it do to us to reconsider our lives in light of the knowledge that the future is paying attention to us, that the future is curious about this very turbulent and dynamic moment in history? And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, this, is, this mm-hmm. is sort of an open question for you is like, what does it mean to you to decide or accept that the future is listening to this conversation mm-hmm. and, yeah, and the, well, that you're in a, right. you're in a dialogue with them? Absolutely. Now this is, it really is just, a, okay. Look, the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan uh, had this notion of the gaze. Okay. And, and we, we always experience ourselves in the eyes of a gaze that that is what you know Freud called the superego you know it's kind of this projection right of well for Freud it was a projection it was an illusion that we'd be projected onto the sky this notion it really comes from our father in childhood we're projecting it on the sky it becomes our superego whatever and and later psychoanalysts like Lacan kind of nuanced it in, in very interesting ways and it's more complex than just our father judging us or whatever. But nevertheless, we live, we always live with some 
gaze, you know, upon us. And yeah, I, I think that in fact, the gaze is real. It's a real, it's a real intelligence gazing upon us. And it's not God. And it's not a fiction. It's us. It's ourselves looking back on us. And I think, and memory, you know, and our future memory of the present is exerting an influence on us. And again, you can, I, I have examples of, of, of this where you can pinpoint it. And, uh, I have enough examples that I believe it. <laughs> and, and I, I think it's so important. I, I really think it's important because I think it's a model for maybe physical processes and life processes more generally, this kind of retrocausal influence. But this, this, the most simple way of, of, of experiencing it is as that gaze. Now, a lot of what we experience in the present as that gaze is kind of a fantasy, you know, but inside that fantasy, there may be, there's a kind of a kernel of, of, of realness, of, of truth. Somehow, somehow our precognitive, uh, our precognition is guiding us toward a real memory of the, of, of the present in the, sometime in the future. And, and so there is a real connection, a real sort of two-way connection, looping connection there. And yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it's very, it's very cool to, to experience firsthand examples of this and then to theorize about what kind of influence this may have on the course of our lives, on history more generally yeah, it's a that's a good it's a good question. Awesome. Well, Eric, this I'm sure will continue to r- resonate into my own past and future. Right. <laughs> this is gonna this is gonna penetrate all the way to your childhood and oh, define sure your will. life's course. This conversation, this very conversation, right now. Well, there is that. I, I forget who it is. My buddy Michelangelo was always bringing up this uh, the cheating the ferryman theory about mm-hmm. about you know looking the the near death experience and the holographic life review and how you are your own higher self looking back on yourself mm-hmm. etc and it's sort of yeah. this ad infinitum regression that i think was part of was was influenced by that the the jw dunn kind of mm-hmm. thinking on yeah, that stuff it's, yeah. it's very phil dick too yeah yeah so Anyway, uh, I hope that this is fun to watch again when we're both dying. Um, <laughs> and I really appreciate you being on the show. Where where do you want to send people? Yeah, it's thenightshirt.com, uh, all one word, thenightshirt.com. Yeah, and my book is available on Amazon, Time Loops. And you've got probably a dozen other awesome podcasts about this stuff with very charismatic people. So go check those out. Not as charismatic as you. Aww. (laughs) I won't tell Eric you said that. (laughs) Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, a truly excellent cornucopia of mind-expanding podcasts, and is brought to you in part by our featured Patreon supporter, Mike Schwab, who works at knowyourmeme.com and has donated his weekly call out to Know Your Meme, which is a truly cool site if you're not familiar with it. It's an exercise at scale in what W.J.T. Mitchell would call a paleontology of the present, a wiki-based effort to 
pre-digest the ridiculous abundance of memes and internet culture for those future unborn historians this show attends to so frequently. That's just a fancy pants way of saying it is an extremely cool site about memes. You should go check it out. If you would like to support Future Fossils, go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, or just leave this show a review on your podcasting platform of preference. It's hugely helpful, and I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll have the next episode up in the geological blink of an eye.